This week's episode is brought to you by 6minutemile.com. Running and fitness news hand curated and delivered directly to your inbox multiple times each week. These six easily digestible stories, reviews, and moments of inspiration are like the skim for endurance athletes. Sign up today and you'll get stories like the future of artificial intelligence and run coaching, which are the best gym exercises for runners, and comprehensive reviews of the latest and greatest gear from the top brands in the industry. Looking for your next race? 6-Minute Mile has a great event directory as well. Visit 6minutemile.com, pop in your email address, and sign up for your very own inbox full of endurance goodness. 6minutemile.com So, essentially the problem is with climate change, you know, most people talk about melt, uh, melting icebergs and stuff, and you see the photos all the time and the videos of icebergs collapsing. Mm-hmm. But, a similar situation happens in uh, the Himalayan mountain range, which is one of the biggest water sources in the world. And the glaciers there are melting. I mean, and that's not just there. I mean, if you go to Europe and you go to like the Rhone Gletscher or any of the glaciers around UTMB and stuff like that, you look at photos from 20 years ago and now, mm-hmm. and you can call that whatever you want. Is it climate change? Is it whatever it is? That is a, I don't think you need to be a scientist to yeah. see that, okay, the snow went all the way down to here and now it's only going down a hundred feet high up. Welcome to Faster Forward. I am your host, Troy Bousseau. This is a show where we sit down and talk with some amazing people from the endurance community, age groupers and Olympians, adventurers and explorers. We discuss their successes and failures about falling down, getting back up, and never, ever quitting. While it's not always about finishing, it is most definitely about starting, getting on a journey faster forward. Well, how are you doing, Thomas? I'm good at this point, yeah. I'm like uh, in the middle of tapering for a race. Very nice. So running, running-wise, running it's a little weird. You know, you, you expect to feel great because you're like <laughs> running less and took took like a couple of days off and you're yeah. not feeling much better than if you ran like whatever big miles. And yeah. so that yeah. like taper, taper phase is kind of weird. So, yeah, but, you're, um, you're waiting for those magic legs to kick in and, and it's just not happening. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yesterday I had a great run. I mean, short, and then today was kind of sort of a little funky. I was like, Hmm. Yeah. But, so, but yeah. otherwise great, had a great family Christmas. Yeah. Um, and, um, excited to run a race this weekend and uh, excited to be on your show. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have you first off. Merry Christmas. And I'm glad to hear you had a good one with the family. So, um, yeah, that's excellent. It's uh, December 26th that we are recording this. So it's, it's nice to get right back into the flow of things. That was nice today on the podcast. We have Thomas Rice, Tom, your, your resume is, is really, um, quite impressive. You, did the thing that pisses me off most, which is three, three months into your running career, you run a sub three, (laughs) sub three marathon. So didn't, didn't give it much time to sort of settle into the legs here. But, uh, so you've been running about 30 years here. Um, and I mean, what's kind of cool about your, your running resume is everything from like 800 meters on up to hundred miles, multi-day marathons. We're going to talk a lot today about the, the snowman race over in Bhutan, which we just had, multiple people. We had um, Emily Ketty. We also had Ashley Winchester, who were both over there to run that race. Um, We'd love to know more about that. It's kind of cool that race has a um, has a sort of maybe even a primary message there around 
the the climate change activism and how to leverage i guess the the international message uh, or the international language of endurance running or sports to to carry the message into a very poor country that is bhutan a uh, very beautiful country and so I'd, I'd love to you know get all into your personal experiences with running and things like that but then also really really talk deeply about this the snowman race Cool. Yeah, I'm like uh, excited to share some stuff on the snowman race. Was yeah. in all my years of running was probably one of the most exciting events I've ever been part of, and and I didn't even run. So yeah. since I was like part of the production team, you know, yeah, um, yeah, it was like it was quite amazing. Um, I was going to ask about that because I mean, even before we get into the epicness that was snowman, it's it's kind of like you're you're like the bartender at the hot club on New Year's Eve on your 21st birthday. You know, you don't even get to run it. You're sort of doing logistics for everything. Um, how was that? Uh, obviously, it was by design because you were brought in to, to do the sort of athlete management side of things. But how tough was it for you to take a back seat, acquiesce, and, and sort of do the management logistics versus actually participating in that event? Um. There were a couple of times where it was hard, mm-hmm. um, but I want to say most of the time was easy because uh, I, I've learned over all my years of running where my my limitations are and my weaknesses, mm. and I just I never do well on super technical high alpine. I mean, high, not necessarily high alpine, but super technical stuff yeah. with lots of vertical. Mm. I'm just not that good at it. And so I actually did get a spot offered like in the very beginning when they hired uh, uh, Louis Escobar, friend of mine as the race director and me as the athlete manager. The the board of directors offered me a spot and mm. I said, no, I don't really want to do this race. It's too hard for me. Wow. <laughs> and so, but then when we were in Bhutan, we went for like a couple of shakeout runs with everyone, like, you know, like a couple of days before the race yeah. and and as it like got close, I was like, oh, dang it, man. I I wish I could start the race, yeah. you know. And then when the race started, I was like, oh, man, I, I wish I could go now, you know. Yeah. But then, uh, I don't know, I, I had to just tell myself again, well, you know what? You would have fun probably for half a day on the yeah. first stage and everything else would be just so painfully suffering. Yeah. And so I got over it quickly. It's it's an interesting thing, like how relative the the running and the suffering side of that is. I've done the Leadville heavy half twice, both times considered doing the marathon, which runs simultaneous to it. So the heavy half is about 15 and a half miles. And both times coming off of Mosquito, you start passing the lead marathoners coming up. And both times I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm glad I didn't do the marathon. Because you're just so spent after running up and then down Mosquito. But the reality is, is had you just done the marathon, you wouldn't have those thoughts, right? I don't think you'd be thinking, oh, I wish I did the heavy half. They're already finishing. You're just in the moment of that, of that experience running, you know? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree on that. It's like, I always think like, the race you go in with knowing what the race is. Mm -hmm. So like in a six hour race, which I did like a few months ago. I ran my first actual timed six-hour race. Mm. And, um, and uh, you know, at three hours, I didn't think like, oh, if I would have signed up for the marathon, I'd be done now. Yeah. It was more like you go in with that expectation, it's six hours. So after like 
five hours, I was like, oh, I'm glad I only have an hour left. Yeah. Versus in a hundred miler, you know, it's the same thing. You Right now, it seems to me like, gosh, how am I going to run a hundred miles? Because I felt tired last weekend on my four hour run. But on this 30 mile run, I was going in knowing it's 30 miles. Right. And then, you know, so, you know, like, oh, at mile 25, I'm tired because I only have five miles to go. Right. You know? So you, you just, your brain just weirdly adjusts to that. Or at least you hope it yeah. does. Yeah. Because if, because it doesn't drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, indeed. Because you've got, I mean, you've got a, you've got an 1805 hundred miler under your belt. So to hear you say that like the snowman was a little bit out of your league, you know, not totally out. You probably could have, you know, done it. But I mean, it's remarkable to hear that you, you know, you're a, you're an eighteen hour hundred miler, and even the snowman sort of gave you pause to think, like, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to. I'm not sure if I want to bite this thing off. So, give us the yeah, but well, I was going to say, give that, us that, just that, kind of that, the, that. the nuts and bolts of like, uh, you know, distance of the snowman race, elevation, all that good stuff. Um, so the distance was a total of, I think, uh, what did we come up with? I think it was a little over 200 K okay. in distance. So like, uh, it averaged out to be roughly about a marathon a day, plus mm. or minus a little bit. Um, but the terrain, it's just, so the snowman track or the, 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 the route, it's not a trail. You really cannot think of it like the. John Muir Trail okay. in the Sierra or something like that. It's not maintained. It's essentially just like to supply goods to the little remote mountain villages that are up there in the Himalayan mountains. Mm, interesting. So it's essentially just horsemen that go back and forth with horses and yaks to transport goods to the remote wow. villages. So it's at, at times it's not even a trail that got built. It's just think of like an animal path that got established because so many people are using it, mm. you know, to go back and forth between those villages. So it's not, it's super rugged and technical. And uh, we had a lot of rain the week before the race. So there were parts that were like just crazy muddy for miles and miles because, you know, all those horses have been like trudging through it yeah. and the yaks. And I mean, those yaks, they're like, I don't know, weigh probably 3000 pounds or yeah. something, you know, and, yeah. It's it's really chewed up, so it's not, mm. um, you know, uh, it's probably maybe comparable to a mixture between Herd 100 in Hawaii and Hard Rock 100 in Colorado, and then just make that a little worse <laughs> and put it into an elevation between 14 and 18,000 feet with wow. an average elevation of 16. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. And just soupy. Yeah, I remember talking to Emily about it, and... I think the thing that really got her was, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, doing like a long bike day into the wind. You know, you, you know, something is 25 miles or 50 miles away or whatever it is, but you're just pedaling into the wind forever and just feel like you're not making that kind of progress. So, you know, walking through the mud and just every step taking, you know, uh, two, three times the energy to, to kind of do the normal uh, run or walk or whatever it is in it. So when, how, how meticulous were you guys in picking the exact week that the race would, were you limited by certain things or were you just kind of like, you know, we know the general range, but how much, how much were you guys able to control on, on the weather front? 
Um, so the date was set from the very beginning um, because it got set by the Kingdom of Bhutan. Mm. So, um, and I mean, the race was supposed to happen three years ago already, mm. um, but then with COVID, it got postponed a couple of times and finally happened this year. Um, but yeah, so the, that, the date was always set um, the same from got the get-go. Um, we got a little unlucky with the weather because like it was raining a lot the week before mm. but then during race actually did rain uh very much okay. at all so got it it's like when we arrived they said all the all the monks that we ever saw and everyone said they were praying for um for weather, good weather with the gods and then um actually race morning it cleared up it was like it was really spectacular wow. at the race start it was beautiful morning and so i think with the weather we got pretty lucky but the trail was very muddy from all the rain before yeah yeah well you know as you say no one said it was going to be easy so it's not like it was billed as a <laughs> easy flat run that you know ended up being kind of you know sticky and and soupy so um yeah what uh so how did this whole thing because i'm 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 very curious uh, I will say up front, not because I'm I'm necessarily skeptical of the science, but I am a general skeptic and a skeptic of like the larger climate change movement only because of the bureaucrats and corruption that I think ultimately, you know, sort of seeps into these types of things when we're talking about so much money. So I, I'm going to set that aside for a second because we can clearly see, I mean, I'm sitting in Colorado our Christmas was sort of blown up because of this massive blizzard that was rolling in and things like that. Not that weather is climate, but that's a, all of that is a conversation for another day. But I'm very curious to understand the, the, the king and queen's sort of overall plan here and how this uh, uh, sort of climate change awareness and how it is specifically affecting Bhutan, which, again, talking to Emily, talking and listening to other podcasts with you on it, it seems very legit what is going on in Bhutan in terms of how the climate is affecting, you know, this high Alpine glacial um, country and, and how they sort of put this whole thing together with the theme of climate change as the background of the race or, or maybe vice versa. Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially the problem is with climate change, you know, most people talk about, Melt, uh, melting icebergs and stuff and you see the photos all the time in the videos of icebergs collapsing mm -hmm. but uh, a similar situation happens in uh, the himalayan mountain range which is one of the biggest water sources in the world and the glaciers there are melting i mean and that's not just there i mean if you go to europe and you go to like the Rhone gletscher or any of the glaciers around utmb and stuff like that you look at photos from 20 years ago and now Mm -hmm. And you can call that whatever you want. Is it climate change? Is it well, whatever it is? That is a. I don't think you need to be a scientist to yeah. see that. Okay, the snow went all the way down to here, and now it's only going down a hundred feet high up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so in Bhutan, what happens? They have a lot of um, um, glacier glacial lakes up in the mountains. And they just get over full and they burst. Mm. And it's it's essentially like a, a dam breaking. Yeah. And the water just shoots down the mountain. And over the years, that has just wiped out whole entire villages. Wow. You know? Yeah. And um, with there being like 
less snow, the winters are less harsh up there. There's a lot of um, animal, weird animal migration, you know, like snow leopards, they have to come, uh, they, they're changing their habitat. And so it just affects a lot of other things, yeah. you know. And again, I'm not a scientist, so, uh, or climate uh, yeah, yeah. expert or anything, you know, but some of the things are very uh, easy to see. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And again, to reiterate, I'm not arguing the effects. I'm arguing, I guess, the approach to fix the effects. That's, that's the only yeah. thing that, that, that I'm sort of arguing. One, I mean, I think that is probably the biggest challenge we have, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, I'm one of them who says like, yeah, we have a problem. But right. then you say, well, Thomas, if you have all the money in the world, how would you fix it? Right. I'm like, I, I don't, <laughs> Right. really know yeah i mean you know i don't think it's just it's not like oh i have a flat tire i need to go to the tire store mm -hmm. and get a new one it's not that simple of a solution yeah and yeah. there's always i'm sure there's always you know if if monies get allocated there's people who take advantage of that yeah for the money purpose and not for the purpose of the cost yeah you know that's obviously always happens you know yeah um so anyway so so Bhutan has a lot to deal with as far as results that happen from climate change. Um, and on the flip side, Bhutan, as small of a country as they are, does a lot to prevent climate change. Mm. Like they were the only, well, I think they're one of the only two or three carbon negative countries in the world. Wow. They... Um, rewrote into their constitution that 60% of the country have to be covered in forest to like, so you can't like wow. to prevent, uh, you know, people cutting down too much forest. Yeah. They put a high emphasis on it in schooling, like in elementary school, you know, something that here would probably be super politicized you mm -hmm. know if we would if we would start teaching in elementary school about climate change yeah. there would be a huge outrage between like republicans and democrats and it's like oh we you know we don't believe in that so we shouldn't tell them but we do and it would be a highly political yeah uh, uh thing here and in bhutan the thing is people trust their leader yeah in his majesty the king and so he thinks it's the right thing to do. So no one really argues with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, and the other, and so, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the, the other thing of note with Bhutan is, is the country itself is so laid bare. There's nowhere to hide from whatever is going on. You know, you, you're not building massive dams and, you know, it, there's so much cause and effect in the U.S. because of so much, you know, whether you're creating heat islands in Phoenix with just acres and acres and acres of, of, um, concrete and asphalt, like in Bhutan, it's sort of like, you're, you're sort of seeing much of the country in a very natural state and, yeah. and there's no hiding it, you know? So uh, that's what is, again, I think it's, it's very interesting to see how easy it, you know, where you can look outside and just see the very binary nature of things to say, this is what's happening. Um, and I've always argued kind of on the climate change side of things, it's like, take care of your water, take care of your soil, take care of your air, you know, those things should sort of 
all coexist. So whatever the hell we want to call it, whatever we want to politicize about it, we need cleaner water. We need cleaner air. We need, you know, better, richer soil that isn't, you know, completely eroded. So the idea that X amount of your country should be covered in trees because that's the best thing, you know, for the people around there, it seems pretty elementary to me. Yeah. 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 And, and the thing is, you know, I think they do a lot considering the resources they have, mm -hmm. you know, um, and like, you know, like, so that's where, where it all started. They do a lot, but they pay a big price, even so, you know, they're like kind of an innocent bystander, mm. you know, and um, so that's where at one point it just became one of their big missions. And so the king wanted to uh, bring awareness to that and do his, his act on a more global scale. Yeah. And therefore, um, initiate this race. There was also a climate uh, action like summit after the race, um, which was really cool. You can find that on YouTube if you search for it. Um, and so the idea is that this hopefully turns into a bigger event where maybe one day some of the world leaders go to that climate action summit. Mm -hmm. um, but the race was essentially just the vehicle to get the word out about this. Got it. Um, because, you know, they figured... If we get, you know, 25 of the top level professional trail runners out there, and obviously trail runners are an easy um, choice because they they believe in the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, and they can go out into those mountains and see it firsthand and um, become like, uh, uh, go back home, become a global messenger, you know, yeah. like the people, you know, with people from France, Switzerland, um, Germany, Africa, you know, and all those people go home just like Emily was on your podcast talking yeah. about this. I'm here talking about it. And yeah. I, I think sometimes small steps are better than no steps. You know, it's yeah. like if you really want to finish a hundred miler, if you're walking slow, <laughs> well, you're not running, but you're still getting closer to the yeah. finish line. And this is how this is a little bit, you know, maybe you and I talking about this today reaches, I don't know, five people, 500, 5,000, who knows? Right. And if all of those make their personal behavior just 1% better. Yeah. Well, we're getting closer. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, it's, it's like that. And it's the same with me. I mean, there's plenty of things I can do better, but... I definitely have tried harder since I'm back from Bhutan. If it's yeah. like cutting my shower down by a couple more minutes and, you know, not throwing my laundry into the wash every day and like, you know, whatever, wearing my, my running socks two days in a row if they're not stinky <laughs> or, you know, whatever little things right. there are you can do. And, yeah. you know, they eventually will add up. Yeah. It's got to be an interesting juxtaposition when you're there in Bhutan, again, a very poor country, a country where, you know, a, an entire multi-generational family will live in a, in, a, in a house probably the size of one of our bedrooms, frankly, you know, in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and you're there to bring awareness, but in order to get there, obviously, you had to fly, you had to, you know... Uh, fly with lots of gear, let's be honest, you know, I mean, you've got, you know, days and days and days and days of, of running gear and all of these other things and stuff. And so 
do you, uh, um, you know, there's sort of like a means justifying the ends type of, you know, I would assume justification there. And, and again, I, and I believe that wholeheartedly, you know, at some point, like you have to sort of break some eggs to make an omelet to, to get this word out, especially in B, um, you know, uh, time is always running out, you know, I mean, like you live in California. I remember growing up, um, I lived in California when I was in kindergarten. Um, I remember very clearly all through the seventies and eighties, like the air quality in California then was so bad. You couldn't see any, not just the, the Marine layer, but you couldn't see across a couple miles and then catalytic converters, cars get cleaner, et cetera, et cetera. The air cleans up quite a bit. So technology has to, has to come into play and all that stuff. But, um, you know, so, so going, going back here, you know, the young King sees this opportunity, um, you know, this, this sort of climate summit, how, how, I guess, genuine does it feel? Because you're sitting there now in the middle of all this, you're running, you're organizing this event. Um, and again, this kind of weird juxtaposition where it's like, you're bringing in all of these outsiders that are representing these countries that are sort of, you know, I mean, certainly much more of the cause of, of whatever's going wrong in, on the globe, more so than Bhutan. Is there this kind of like, uh, what's the feeling in Bhutan about this, I guess, is my question, you know, from the rank and file, not just the king, but sort of on up and down. Is there a bitterness? Is there an anger toward Westerners saying, cut it out, you know, and, and sort of help us? Or, or what's the general feeling there? Um, definitely not. Um, the Bhutanese in their culture, they're just like, way too nice and welcoming and, and and friendly just in their culture but like genuinely you know it's not like phony they're yeah. really like they just you know what they they would give their give you like their last meal and not eat themselves yeah. you know that, that's just how they are um they're just very good people and you know yeah so there's definitely no there was no oh well you guys are you're the problem of all, you know, and no, there's definitely none of that. Um, but we did get um, a decent amount of criticism from people, like you said. Oh, like an example, me as the athlete manager who was in charge of recruiting athletes, I had several conversations um, with athletes who were like, well, I already reached what I allow myself for my carbon footprint for the year mm. and so i'm not going on another international trip and how can you justify flying all those people there yeah. you know it's like airplanes are the worst polluter and you're flying them all there and and like my thinking is it's like you know sometimes in business you have to spend money to make money yeah. just like you said the the you have to crack an egg to make an omelet yeah. you know it's like I feel like, you know, if we get all those athletes and we reach so many more people, then it was worth the investment of whatever we we spent. You know, and, and there were quite a few athletes who actually used like carbon offsetting companies and stuff like that, you know, which obviously you can always argue, okay, does that really yeah. help? I mean, you flew on that airplane, so just because you paid you have a, you know, pay someone a couple hundred bucks doesn't mean you right. didn't fly. You still, you know, so obviously there's that argument too because 
I had to have those conversations with people as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm a firm believer, you know, it was worth the investment because if I look at how much press worldwide we've gotten for the yeah. race and how many people have been on podcasts and now people think about and we are like, man, that poor little country, Bhutan, you know, they're really affected by that. And gosh, yeah. maybe I sh should do more and maybe I should vote for more like a, a, a climate action projects and maybe I should donate some money and maybe I should become active myself and do something. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What, um, it, it's interesting because the, you almost fear that you're going to be a victim of your own success. Like what, you know, it's like you want to have, and I, and I understand that the, the snowman race was invite only. So I don't think you're going to get into a situation where you have thousands of people like, you know, showing up on race day where all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, you sort of become the UTMB of, of, uh, yeah, you know, that part of the world, but you are kind of a victim of your own success because while you want to solve this problem, the way to solve this problem is by bringing more people and more attention and, you know, growing the, you know, you, if everybody there is a messenger, obviously the only way to increase the, and amplify the message is to have more messengers. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it, it's kind of interesting to think about like how you, how you leverage this, this message, especially, you know, in the, in the world of this kind of NIMBY type of mentality, you know, not in my backyard where something can, something, something is very easy when it's hundreds or thousands of miles away to ignore. And the second it shows up in your backyard, now all of a sudden you care about it, you know, whether it's homeless or, or, you know, the fentanyl problem or climate change or whatever the, the things that are going on here. And so how do you, again, take this thing that, that is happening all around us, but the effects aren't felt all around us and, and sort of bring it to people's backyards. And I guess you, you sort of address this a little bit by just having more athletes talking and, you know, more podcasts and things like that. But I, you know, as the host or, you know, somebody who talked to Ashley, somebody who talked to Emily, somebody who's talking to you, to be honest, like the climate side of things never really, you know, played into it. It's this, this epic race that I think most people are, are more focusing on. So like, how do you bring the climate side? How do you amplify that? You as an art director, for instance, you know, how do you amplify the climate side of things while also celebrating the race and the athletes? Yeah, that's, that's obviously a, a challenge, you know, and um, key is to, to find the right athletes who are good messengers, mm -hmm. you know, um, and yeah, there's, there's probably some athletes who ran a cool race and went home and never took any action. You know, I mean, thinking about it, there's maybe a couple or so mm -hmm. that I could think of, you know, um, there was also some athletes that I talked to that we didn't select because we figured they just don't get it, mm. you know, because it was all about the race and how can I win? And is there prize money to win? And is there an appearance fee? And is said this and it's like no 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 this is not about you yeah you know this is more about bhutan than you and yeah. this is more about the whole global community who's affected by by climate change you know um so so yeah there's definitely a challenge because yeah it was a race and a lot of people talked about the race and oh wow this guy ran so fast and the course was so hard and 
and we that's something we can we probably can improve on yeah i would say is being critic like self-critical to mm-hmm. myself here um on the whole climate concern you know that could be probably pushed more than it was you know i think there's always room for improvement yeah um how can you get more messengers you know uh, yeah this this race it's impossible to make it the utmb of right. Bhutan because just the sheer logistics it's completely impossible to send much more people out than we already have i mean we're talking some of the aid stations are like a five six day hike wow. with like thir- with like 30 horses and like 10 to 15 people staffing one wow. aid station you know we have five of them or four of them yeah um it's just if you would have 200 people i mean you would need like impossible you would you would have to set up tents and everything i mean suddenly you would need like 150 tents so there's not even a spot that would be big enough to set up the tents and you would probably need 200 horses yeah it's just logistically impossible you know so i don't think this race i mean yeah you could maybe do something where we where you add like a out and back marathon on the first day so it's like like kind of like you know how they have like the marathon and then the day before they have like a little yeah 5k for like the friends and family you know sort of a thing yeah you could probably do something like that um but it would have to be so expensive as an entry fee yeah with uh, and the travel to bhutan is already expensive and the the being a tourist there is expensive I don't even know if a lot of people would really want to do it, yeah. you know? So, yeah, so I don't see any concern about, yeah. oh, now you're flying 200 athletes to Bhutan, you know, and you keep talking about climate change, yeah. you know? So I don't think we will ever run into that problem. Yeah, it almost feels like kind of an eco-challenge type of format where it's a very small, you know, it's much smaller, much more exclusive group and then just, you know you're really trying to, I guess, you know, create, whether it's a documentary or you're really trying to document what you're seeing, what you're feeling, because in a way, you know, the, the muddy course, the, the treachery of all the, you know, the actual race really does probably a better job than anything highlighting the effects of climate on the region, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's just an, sort of an, an interesting problem to have, And obviously, you know, like this thing has to go more than one year, two years like this, you know, needs to get amplified over the next 10 years. And really, you know, because part of the story is probably going to be showing not 20 years ago, this is what the glaciers look like. But, you know, 10 years ago, this is what the race looked like. Even, you know, this, Mm -hmm. this, we were in this exact spot 10 years ago and look, look at, you know, look where the snow was, look where the glacier was, you know, that type of thing. Exactly. And showing the change. Yeah. And I'm, I, I think the getting more messengers is like coming from getting more uh, bigger news outlets mm-hmm. to report about this, yeah. you know, um, like, you know, getting like a New York Times to write about it, National Geographic or Discovery Channel, making a special on it, you know, and yeah. it's hard with the first time event um, because I know there had been outreach done to those outlets mm-hmm. and, you know, they're like, well, well, we'll see. Why don't you get one done and we'll see if it happens. Yeah. And, you know, so um, 
I, I think if the race happens a couple more times and suddenly you get maybe some, you know, a film crew from Netflix making a special about it, yeah. you know, that's kind of the getting more messengers yeah. or getting it more in front of people. I think that's where I see it happen versus having 2000 people on the starting line to For get sure. more people to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that quantity over quality, your job as a curator becomes so paramount because you need to get just the right people there because you can't, yeah. you can't amplify the number of messengers. You really do need bigger voices. Exactly. Ultimately. Yeah. 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 So how many Bhutanese runners were in the race versus non-Bhutanese runners? Um, so we had um, 20 international athletes and then we had nine Bhutanese athletes, Okay, five men and four women. Okay. Cool. Yeah. What um, was uh, when you were recruiting the athletes? What like how many of those nine Bhutanese uh, at, did any of them speak English? Um, it's mixed. I would say there's like, um, let me think back. I mean, the the woman who won Karma, she lives in Laya, which is one of the most remote villages mm. in Bhutan. She's like works as a as a yak herder, you know. Wow. And um, wow. she spoke almost no English. Wow. But then one of the other women, um, Tashi, she's, um, she works as a cultural guide. Mm. So her, her English was, I would say, perfect for wow. any, anything, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was kind of, and it was the same with the guys. There was a um, couple of guys, their English was okay. And then, like, the other three spoke barely English, you know. Dep depends on, a little bit on age because... Um, another thing the king decided a few years ago, I don't know when, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that for Bhutan to deal on a global scale and talk to people, they need to learn how to speak English. Mm. And so now English is like the pretty much every kindergarten, school, everything has English. So the kids, wow. I mean, you literally, you meet like... Uh, I mean, I, I went for a run one day and there was like a bunch of little kids. They were like six and seven years old and they started running with me on their way home from school. And I stopped and they asked me all those questions. Where are you from? How old are you? Wow. What's your name? And, and um, because they spoke English because yeah. now everyone learns English. But then the people like, you know, that are like, like Sangay, I think he's like 40, you know, so his English is much more limited because he didn't grow up with learning English mm. at a young age in school already. Yeah. So it's amazing. I mean, the, the king is what about 43, 44 years old. Yeah. I think he's 43 now. Wow. I mean, it uh, just, yeah, something like that. 43, 44. It's, it's amazing the difference that one person and their vision and their sort of progressiveness can like turn a country, you know, like that around so quickly, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's another thing that's interesting in Bhutan versus other kingdoms i mean you, know, you can obviously that, that's a whole nother discussion if, yeah. <laughs> if in our world and society these, these days there's still room for a kingdom or not or yeah. how it is in england where you have a king or had a queen and uh, always that's what you can think about that whatever you want but yeah. um in bhutan the king becomes king when his dad thinks he's old enough mm. so the the previous king i think he retired at age 
I want to say 58 or something. Wow. And because he felt his son is a better choice to be the king. And his wow. son at this point, I think he was only like 32 or something. So he was, became king at a very young age. Yeah. Because, but not because his dad died. Yeah, his yeah. dad's still alive and he's out there, you know. And, uh, yeah. um, and, um, but he felt, you know what, my son is way better suited at this point. So I retire, you know, which again is something, I mean, you would never see in any other country. That's why we have so many like world leaders that are completely out of touch with completely, you know, because that, that's just too old. Yeah. You know? And I mean, I'm like, I'm 54 and there's many things where I feel I'm too old where yeah. I'm like, you know what, this would be better if my son does yeah. it who's 19 than me. Yeah. You know, because I'm, I'm too old for this nonsense, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of countries hang on to their leaders until way 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 too late that's a great it's a great lesson to to carry forward i mean truly you know that like the father sort of moving into an advisory role because you don't want to lose the wisdom on one hand but on the other hand you right you need a certain energy and relatability to the younger um to you know the the reality is 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 the the ideas that are coming up right now are are so rebellious because you have basically everybody in the Western world is so rebelling against these septuagenarians and octogenarians that are running things, frankly, into the ground. And so you have these massive, like, I guess, you know, in a negative way, I think in a lot of ways, this very disruptive kind of, you know, rebellious type of attitude versus what they've, you know, seemed to have tapped into in Bhutan, where it feels much more organic, like, okay, you know, the elder is now going to be an advisor. We have the person at the right age with the right amount of energy who's going to come in, who's going to make, you know, progressive change to the country that is in the country's best interest, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this, um, it's interesting that the, the, the snow snowman trail, or I guess is a track or trail or whatever it is. Um, you're basically, did, did you, you didn't cover the whole thing, right? Or do you just a segment? Of no. The, it? Okay. Yeah. The race is a segment of it. Okay. The, the whole snowman track is, uh, quite a bit longer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so it, was it, did it feel like a race when you were doing it? Did it feel like were the Bhutanese, was there, was there, uh, I'm reminded of Born to Run, the Tarumara went to Leadville and, you know, it was a very like a, you, it felt like a race and there was something on the line there. Um, did it feel like that or did it feel much more, um, I guess, kind of a, like a kumbaya type of moment for the, the Bhutanese and the non-Bhutanese? What was your sense? It it was definitely an all-out race for okay. the Bhutanese, <laughs> cool. and and we we knew that getting into it. Okay. And um, I had many conversations individually with our athletes and said, "Look, I look at this like a mountain expedition. Mm -hmm. If like a mountain expedition, if everyone gets to the summit and gets safe back to base camp, it was a great expedition. Yeah, no one's gonna talk about oh, I was up there an hour before you and I." needed five more, more hours to get back down. Everyone summited, took the photo, came down safely, was a successful expedition. That's how I looked at that race. Yeah. But I also told every one of our athletes, the Bhutanese, for them, there's a lot of pride involved. Got it. And they want to make their king proud. They want to make their country proud. And for them, it's like, 
they're, they're not professional athletes. They're mm -hmm. like common people. They're in the military. I mean, karma is a yak herder. Yeah. And I mean, they like, by running in this race, they got to meet your majesty, which is like the biggest honor in their life. Wow. They were on national TV, you know? I mean, for our athletes, yeah, they were on Bhutanese national TV and that's cool, but that's where it ends. Yeah. You know, but for those people, I mean, like now, like people in their country, everyone in their country knows them. And so they had just a lot more on the line. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, they, I, and we knew that they, for them, it was not just about climate change or anything. It was like, we want to like make our country proud and beat those Westerners. That's you know, awesome. we knew that. Yeah. I mean, we knew that. And a couple of them I met years ago and I've known them for a while now and mm. they have become really good friends. And um, I was concerned about their safety. I was like, you know, I know you want to win this race, but just be safe. Don't do anything stupid, you know, because yeah. it is high altitude. And, you know, I figured they would probably push through anything like, you know, altitude sickness or whatever may come their way. Just yeah. they, they will run until they tip over, you know, wow. and that made me a little bit nervous um, for those guys. But, yeah, everyone came out safe and, yeah, they, they really kicked some major but that's they, awesome they were good runners yeah how how westernized was their equipment their nutrition you know was it was, was it more native uh, on the nutrition side or, or like how did you perceive that so we brought a lot of nutrition for them i mean they you know you can't buy gels in Bhutan. Uh -huh. you can you know i mean yeah I mean, the, the the night before the race, I gave actually Karma, who won the race, I gave her my headlamp because she had like a little headlamp that looked like the the headlamp you buy for your kids when they're like five years old to go camping that yeah. you buy, buy at Walmart for like yeah. $6, you yeah. know, I'm like you can't go out with that, you know, and <laughs> so the, the gear was definitely very, very limited. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, I actually was fortunate enough to uh, have some connections actually, you know what? I'll give them a shout out right here right now, Please which do. was um, Rabbit in Santa Barbara was very generous, gave us like, I don't know how, how much, but like a huge duffel bag of, of clothing oh, for awesome. all the athletes and running warehouse donated 20 pairs of shoes that I brought with me um, that I left out. with the athletes there. So um, that was really cool. And yeah, because they just, they just don't have very much, yeah. you know, it's just, you know, I mean, they they showed up for running and instead of a like a nice running vest you know they had like like a little 20 liter backpack yeah. just a regular backpack you yeah. know and yeah yeah so. a fashion to strap <laughs> yeah so so they were definitely limited in the gear and 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 nutrition and equipment they had you know yeah but they're used to getting away with less for sure yeah too, and, you know. And of the nine, how familiar were they with this? Whether it's the entire thing or, or you know, the with the snowman um, route. Yeah, they they definitely had an advantage on that um, because they they trained. They did a little training camp on the course, okay. so they didn't do the whole course, and they spent more time in higher elevations than the Western runners. Um, so they definitely had some advantages on that end. Yeah. Um, and actually, Sangay, one of the runners, he um, he was part of the the country of Bhutan mm -hmm. that did a 
calibration run where they just sort of did a test run with like just five guys like three years ago Okay, uh, when the idea was born and he was one of them. And so he had actually run the whole course three years ago. Okay. So yeah, they definitely had a, an advantage on that end. Yeah, it's a tough thing. Um, I don't know how involved you were in the in the sort of the course building, but being a race director, especially for a race that you are, you know, the theme of which has got to be, you know, it's a tough race, right? It's invite only, that type of thing. And, and balancing the toughness with the finishability, obviously you don't want, you know, 100% DNFs. Um, how did you, like, how did you guys pick the 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 section of the the trail was was that sort of handed down and given to you by the the guys that had you know lived in the area and knew that that um that route really well yeah so the the route was predetermined by the snowman board okay um so i think so the race started in gaza which is a beautiful place with a beautiful uh song which is songs like an old monastery okay um, and I think they just wanted to start the race there. Got it. Um, and then it just ended where it ended. I think that's how they came up with the course. Plus, they had a couple of places that they wanted to go through, like uh, Lunana, which is a very remote city. There's actually, if anyone has an interest, there's a great um, movie called um, uh, A Yak in the Classroom. Mm. Um, I think it was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Movie. Um, it's a really, really cute movie um, that plays in Lunana, which Lunana was the third night halt, and it's a very remote um, village. So they wanted people to get through that and get into the real high country. So, yeah. Hmm. So what was the race itself like? I mean, you, you say it was basically an all-out race, certainly from the, the, the Bhutanese. Um, I'm like, I love that I had Ed Hanaran Finn on the podcast about a year ago talking about um, a, a stage race that he had done. I think it was in the Sahara. Um, but the stage race, you know, it's one thing to run 100 mile or 250 miles these days. And one would think that the stage race would be easier because you get to rest in between. But in a lot of ways, it ends up being harder because it's that stopping, you know, getting yourself back motivated the next day. Um, how did how did the race play out? Did it play out the way you thought it would? Did you see a lot more suffering, less suffering? Um, what is the mindset that you think that athletes need to bring into a race like this? Um. I think for most part, it played out the way that I imagined it. And I'm you know, just speaking for myself, mm -hmm. not for others. Um, I, I figured that we would have some people dropping out, even so the people in the race, and they were all highly qualified, you know, UTMB finishers, marathon disabled, Nolan 14s, I mean, you know, hard rock, whatever, you know, they were all very qualified, but you, you always have a certain amount of people who are just going to drop at yeah. one point for whatever reason. Um, I figured we may have a couple of people having problems with altitude, getting, mm -hmm. you know, AMS or HAPE or something. and was hoping that it's nothing too horrible. Yeah. Um, we had a couple of those, you know, we had a couple of people who dropped out because they realized after two days, holy smokes, this is like, even I knew it would be hard, but this is even 
harder than I thought, and I'm just done. I'm not going to continue. We had all that. Um, I was a little surprised that I thought on the first day, the top five guys would be five Bhutanese guys because mm. I figured they were just going to run it like it's a one-day race. Yeah. You know? And I thought, okay, they may pull that off for a second day, but then on day three and day four and day five, the people who are more experienced and paced each other a little better kind of like creep up on them and catch them, yeah. which did never happen. Wow. <laughs> the, the Bhutanese guys, they just ran all out every day and wow. just never really, never really crumpled. You know? wow. <laughs> um, so that was the only thing where I want to say I was a little, a little surprised. Mm, that's interesting. What is it? Um, you've done a lot of mountaineering and things. Um, I mean, something that I remember distinctly as a child was going camping in the Arizona mountains up in the Mogollon Rim and just the, the billions of stars that you could see, which, I mean, even if you go up there now, you, it's not the same as it was, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, because of the, you know, light pollution, especially not mm -hmm. to mention the air pollution, but was it just on another level being at that, at that altitude in a, basically a pristine untouched part of the world by most of technology? Like what was the sky like at night there? Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I've been on the course like two years ago mm -hmm. um, when we had a planning meeting in Bhutan and well, actually right before COVID. So it's three years ago. And um, we actually went for like four days onto the course mm. and I took some photos. It was actually, it was just when uh, the iPhones came out with the night, yeah. nighttime, night mode. Yeah. And, uh, I took so many photos at night. It was just insane. It's wow. just like, yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. Cause there's just, you know, nothing there, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's so. the, you know, there, there's so much of this that is like, cause you know, my kids are 19 and 16 and they don't, they, they've never seen a night like that. You know, I mean, even in Leadville and places like that, they'll, you know, mm -hmm. there's especially again, the light pollution, but that's something to highlight that, you know, next year's race or whatever it is, is something that, that I think for whatever reason, the whole climate change piece has, as you said, has been so politicized, but the, the other effects of things are just so freaking <laughs> clear and obvious that I don't mm -hmm. care what side of the political spectrum you're on to see a sky full of stars, to see a clear, to breathe. You know, I moved up from Phoenix to Colorado seven years ago and I go back there. I cannot believe the pollution that I lived in for the last, you know, mm -hmm. 40 years of my life. Like Colorado's air is a thousand times cleaner than Phoenix. And I just don't, I think there's too many people that just have no idea what they're living through. They just have no idea. There's no, it's, it, it's like the frog in the, you know, pot of boiling water that are just slowly boiling to death, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Why, you know, the, I mean, again, no matter what your opinion is, it's just a lot of people are ignorant to, to anything, you know, yeah. they're like, Oh no, this is fine. This is great. You know, but it's like, they just, they just can't look beyond their like fence, their own yeah. fence on the house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's part of, a problem worldwide, not just in the For US. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, being from Germany, I mean, I watch 
German news every every morning and evening, and you know, and it's the same there. There's a lot of people that are just like ignorant about the most obvious things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, they'll watch on their eighty-inch, like crystal clear television those scenes, and they I don't know they think it's CGI or something. But you know, it's like no, you could <laughs> you used to be when I was a kid, you'd walk outside in the summer, even yeah. in Phoenix, you know, you would see thousands of stars, not billions, but mm -hmm. thousands, you know. Um, you had to go a little bit out of town, but nowadays, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it, that, that's a sad thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm very happy to have you on because again, I don't give a shit what side of the political spectrum you're on. Like we have to take care of our air, our soil, our water, you know, those types of things. And, and if the climate is or isn't, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Like you have to live your life in an intentional way we, I think, can all learn something from cultures like the Bhutanese that live in, you know, in the earth, with the earth, in symbiosis mm -hmm. with the, you know, because, not because they're better people than us, but because they have to, because they are in it. They don't have a choice. They can't mm -hmm. just escape to their mountain cabin or their, you know, whatever. Um, they're in it. And we need to all sort of uh, take that backyard mentality to to helping to fix this problem, you know, whether it's again, as you said, like adjusting how you shower or taking much, much bigger steps based on the impact that you feel like you can have. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So 2023, you've got a, a full calendar moving off of, of snowman for a minute, but I noticed you're doing, you're doing Leadville this year, which is awesome. I'll, I'm, I'm officially mm -hmm. volunteering if you need uh, a pacer for any segment uh, at oh, Leadville. Cool. I'm, I'm, I would love to be there and, and help you through that experience. I can't, I will never finish Leadville 100, but I absolutely love, um, I love pacing it. So well, you never know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, it's, it's about desire and I love running. I love running in Leadville. I don't think that I love the, the effects of a hundred, uh, on my body, my particular body. Like I, it just, to me is like a bridge too far. I love everything yeah. about it. But, um, I'm not, I'm just not, I, I think I know myself well enough now. I'm not willing to suffer to that level. Yeah. I, I, I don't really like hundred miles either. Mm. It's not my favorite distance, but it's just, there, there's just something that's yeah. just so cool about a hundred <laughs> miles, you know, it's, sure. um, and when I got into ultra running, I was like, I'm never going to run a hundred mile. That's just stupid. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> 50 miles, okay. I, I started out mostly with 50K and 50 miles, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm like, maybe I run 100K. And then I ran 100K and it's like, oh, you have a Western States qualifier. Why don't you yeah. sign up? I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then like, yeah, Leadville was my first 100 miler in 2010. Okay. And I haven't done, I haven't done that many. I've only ran like, I think five or 600 milers. Yeah. Because, I, it it just scares me. It is a long way. It changes you, know? you. And it's 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 um, but it's just really cool. Yeah. It's just there's just something about it that's just really cool. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I just I tend to do better when I um. I guess overachieve rather than underachieve. Meaning I've like I had a hundred. I had Leadville on my bucket list. And I couldn't even make it 50. Like I just, my body keeps breaking down. So I figured if I just change my attitude to just say, look, I'm never going to do a hundred. 
I'm going to do these other things. Maybe I'll get there. Maybe it'll just sort of by yeah. accident, you know, I'll do a 50 and then I'll, you know, so we'll see. I've been working a lot on those mechanics and, and we'll see if I can get there. But in the meantime, I absolutely, um, th there's something about, and I've, people who listen regularly to the podcast are going to get sick of hearing me say this, but there's something about pacing in a race like Leadville where you are 100% in the service of others. It has nothing to do with you or your run or how cold you are, how tired you are, anything. You're carrying, you're carrying the other guy's pack. You're, you know, you're ignoring all the bad things that are happening to you, right? And so it, it, it's sort of a, an analogy for snowman in a way, right? It's not like, it, like, it's not about you in the race. It's about the climate or snowman or, or Bhutan. You are there representing sort of the change you want to see. I want to see that other person finish the hundred, you know? Nope. I mean, I've paced many friends in many races, you know, and it's, it's very rewarding. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, if you're that kind of person, it's sometimes even more rewarding than finishing a race yourself, you know, yeah. like being helpful to someone else's success. Yeah. That's just a really, really <clears throat> cool thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's something that I would recommend for like literally anybody, even if you think you can't run a marathon, like you're never running. I mean, unless you're pacing for an elite, you know, somebody who's going to challenge for the win. But, you know, oftentimes you're going to be walking it like don't be intimidated by it being Leadville or it being 100. If you can get up there and you can help, you know, help somebody through that race, it is, I think, just an absolutely remarkable experience to do that. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. What else, uh, what else do you have going on besides uh, Leadville this year? So, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really determined that since I have this race on Saturday. And so mm -hmm. this is a, a new format. I've never ran a race like that. It's okay. a flat, uh, flat 100 miler. It's on a looped course. It's on a one mile loop. Oh, is this um, through the years or whatever? Yeah, called? across the years. Across the years. Okay, cool. That's uh, yes. Air Viper, right? In Phoenix. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so I've never ran a race like that. And everyone, my whole entire ultra running career always kept telling me I should run a race like that because it yeah. would suit me well mm. or my friends and everyone. Interesting. Because I'm not, I'm, I'm just not that good of a trail runner and not that good of a climber mm. but i love mountainous technical trail races okay. you know yeah. so i always tend to do those races but then don't do them as good as i should based on mm. my general leg speed you know and so everyone's like you should do a race like that where you just lock in your pace and you just keep plugging along you know and so finally at age 54 i'm trying one of those cool. so um so yes yeah, so i'm doing that on uh um uh, saturday yeah oh so just like five days from now and um so i was very hesitant to make any plans for after that yeah. because i'm like i'm turning 55 next year and so i i'm very competitive mm. and so i want to try next year and go after the road 100k national age group record okay 55 to 59 um, and then possibly if this looped hundred miler goes well, as far as not necessarily based on the time I'm running, based on the experience I'm having, yeah, 
I may try an attempt to go after the 100-mile age group record as well next year. Oh, good luck. So, so this is going to be a test run for that. And um, so we'll see how it goes and how I like it. Yeah. Um, but then Leadville, um, I was signed up for Leadville actually two years ago mm. and then you know, got canceled because COVID. And mm -hmm. so they let you push it to next year and then they let me push it to next year again. And this time they were like, okay, you either need to run it this year yeah. or you're losing your spot. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm running it. Got it. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, it's all, I had I'd already paid for it three years ago and, yeah. and was already in this and everything. And so... Uh, well, that's a magical yeah. place. There, there are far yeah. worse places to run than Leadville, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to run it in 2020 because that was like, I ran it in 2010 mm -hmm. for my first 100 mile line. So I thought, oh, that would be cool to run it 10 years later in 2020. Yeah. You know, and, um, but like I said, it got canceled. And, um, yeah. But so, so that's on the list for um, August, whatever, 20th or whenever yeah. it is. How do you train and differently? So, How is your training like this um, across the years versus, you know, something like Leadville? Are you doing a lot of track running right now? Just trying to get your head in that? No, I'm not, I mean, I'm not really running. I'm not going out for a 25 mile run and run like 25 one mile loops around right. the house, you yeah. know. Um, but I've done almost zero vertical. I mean, mm. in the last three months, I probably had like, I don't know, I don't even know how, how much, like, you know, 25 mile run with like 400 feet of vertical. <laughs> yeah. So almost nothing. Got it. It's all on the road. I have not been on trails at all. Mm. And it's all very paced, very planned. You know, there's no yeah. like, oh, here's a big climb. You're going 15 minute pace. Oh, you're bombing this downhill at seven minute pace. It's all like, Stay. most of my training has been between between 740 and 820 pace okay to get ready for hopefully averaging around nine minute pace okay um between nine and 930 sort of my goal which yeah. gets me in the between 15 and 16 hours finish time wow and um so we'll <laughs> see so yeah so it's all been like very very monotone running yeah. you know like yeah you no know, lots of um back-to-back -back marathons on the weekend, you know, yeah. marathon. Like, I would usually go, go like three and a half to four hours Saturday and then the same on Sunday again, Yeah, you know, and and do it just at that 8.05 pace, 8.10 pace, yeah. you know, just not slow, not fast, Yeah, just that like hitting that consistent pace, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, now you're just locking yourself in the gray closet and just, uh, just yeah. getting you're getting ready for that monotony. Yeah. Yeah. Versus training for Leadville, you know, will definitely involve trail running again. And I mean, yeah. I mean, Leadville is has a lot of like, I mean, besides whole pass, there's not really much technical stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a couple of small sections, um, and Leadville has a lot of running. You yeah. know, you have to run a lot in Leadville. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and so Leadville probably, my hope is with this 100 mile experience, try to get a little faster, maybe run a road 100K after my birthday when I'm 55 in March. And then over summer, put in trail miles and vertical. Yeah. But 
keep the running legs, the fast running legs from the flat road running. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, start doing like, you know, I have like some places I have this one climb, it's like a thousand feet over one and a half miles, you know, and do like three times hill repeats up there. Yeah. Doing stuff like that, you know, just to get the vertical in. Yeah. Are you, is your deficiency on trails, is it more up or down or, or pretty evenly split? I'm a pretty good downhill runner if okay. it's not technical. Got it. Like anything technical, I'm I'm like my background is road running, mm. and so I'm just you know a, a, a lot of trail ultra runners. Their background is mountain biking yeah. or snowboarding and mountaineering, and you know uh, versus I used to run road and track, so I have a little I'm a little more challenged. Yeah. Um, in taking those risks downhill, but if it's a smooth downhill, oh yeah, I can run fast relatively speaking yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um but yeah uphill i'm just if it's not too steep i can run okay and if if it's not too steep and not technical you know i can i can still run yeah like something like talking about let's we're like going up um hackerman pass mm -hmm. that road there i think that's what it is right after the um first lake after turquoise lake i, I don't know the name of it yeah but anyway you know it's like not too steep and it's like essentially like a a, a dirt road like gravel road yeah. you know i can run yeah but then if it gets really steep and technical i'm like i'm walking slow yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not even walking fast yeah uh, well awesome um well thomas has been fantastic chatting uh about snowman and again i I'm, I'm i'm officially offering my services if you're looking for an extra pacer awesome. up in leadville i'd be uh, more than honored and mind. happy to do that for sure um where can people find you out there and where can they learn more about uh, what you're up to um so my website thomasrice.com and then um on instagram my instagram handle is thomas.rei55 okay got that um that's where i post most of my stuff training updates and stuff so um yeah awesome well we'll have that in the show notes to make it easy on people cool. um awesome well thanks a lot man and again merry christmas and good luck yeah, saturday you. tell jamil yeah, and thanks the, yeah tell jamil and everybody down in phoenix we said hello yeah i can use some good luck probably never hurts <laughs> having good luck too so you'll do great yeah i i, I loved my conversation with ed hunter on finn he did the transcendent run and like his story about his 100 miles on the track is phenomenal if you go back and listen to that yeah. that podcast or if you've read his book that was awesome i check out that podcast yeah cool awesome well you can listen while you're cool. running <laughs> yeah all right well i have already a bunch of podcasts lined up that i cannot listen to because it's gonna be like you know Cool. Lots of running in circles. So, <laughs> oh, very good. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, that sure. was great. It was fun spreading the word about snowman race and climate awesome. action. And yeah, so, let's. You yeah. know, I'd love to. I'd love to. Whether it's you know, have you and Emily or Ashley or anybody next year. Like, I'd love to. You know, sort of get get earlier in the game and help to sort of push the presence before the race happens and you know get people drummed up following folks on instagram and watching along in the race and you know let's um let's yeah, amplify let, that message yeah i let you know when we hear word it's still in the discussion if it's gonna be next year again or every two years got it um but yeah as soon as i find something out i make sure i let you know yeah it'd be fantastic awesome yeah. all right sounds good all right have a great okay. week and good luck saturday 
Thank you. Right, okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That is the show, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to Thomas Rice for sitting down and having a great hour with us. We will have a special uh, episode on Instagram for episode 57. Drop us any comments or questions you have there. If you have any suggestions for upcoming guests or if you'd love to be featured on the Faster Forward show, just drop me a note there or you can email me directly at troy at That's B-U-S-O-T. And if you've got a minute, uh, I'd really appreciate a quick uh, rating or review where you listen to podcasts. And I know most of you listen on Apple Podcasts, so just drop us a, a rating and a review there. It'd be fantastic. And last you, lastly, this one doesn't cost you a penny. Just share it far and wide with any of your endurance-loving friends that you think would enjoy the Faster Forward show. So again, thank you for listening. And until next time, and as always, keep it moving faster forward, everybody. Mm-hmm.